TUC Radio, Time of Useful Consciousness. Firestorm, how wildfire will shape our future. From Radio Ecoshock. Alex Smith interviewed Ed Struzik on the recent out-of-control firestorms and how wetlands can limit their spread. This extraordinary conversation was broadcast on August 18, 2021 on the weekly one-hour radio show EcoShock. Radio EcoShock is produced in Western Canada and heard on over 104 non-commercial radio stations in five countries. Host Alex Smith covers climate change in personal direct interviews with scientists and authors. So welcome, Alex, to TUC Radio and thank you for permission to rebroadcast. In 1997, 98, and 2010, peat fires were smoke bombs and they were carbon bombs. We're going to get a sneak peek from a new book by Canadian author Ed Struzik. Ed's previous book seems pretty on topic, too, Firestorm, How Wildfire Will Shape Our Future. Struzik is an award-winning science journalist, and a fellow at the Institute for Energy and Environmental Policy at Queen's University in Kingston, Canada. Ed Struzik, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Thanks for having me on. Your book Firestorm came out after the oil town of Fort McMurray, Canada, partly burned in 2016. You worked out the math of living in an age of megafires. From your perch in Alberta now, Ed, what do you make of the superfires burning through California right up to British Columbia? You know, it's head-spinning. In 2016, Fort McMurray seemed like the nightmarish future in that we couldn't top that. And then California just kept burning and burning and burning, and British Columbia and Canada, I think three of the past five years, have been record-breaking fire seasons. And we're also seeing what's happening now in Europe, in Sicily, Sardinia, uh, what happened to Australia. I can tell you I've talked to many people in the fire science community and no one, no one envisioned anything like this happening as fast as it's been happening. It's just, we've been just seeing so many firsts that it's hard to kind of uh, uh, register in your mind that this is what's happening to the landscape. Yes, I think of the gorgeous landscapes and beloved homes burned in more than half a dozen Mediterranean countries this summer, as you mentioned. Northern Algeria is the latest to suffer deadly forest fires. It's a lot of nature lost, too. Ed, talk to us about the impacts for all of us long after the smoke of this year's fire clears. Well, the impact is is that we're going to you know have to deal with a lot of you know what many people call climate change refugees. How do we reintegrate them into the forests and grassland ecosystems that have burned so severely? Uh, how do we plan for the future to prevent more and more of these evacuations and these burn downs? I don't think that we've come to grips with it yet. We seem content with the business-as-usual approach to compensate those who have lost their homes, lost the landscapes that they, they love. But that's really not the answer. Clearly, we can't afford to do that. Insurance companies are now beginning to refuse to uh, insure people who live in these environments. So we have to come 
up with a new way of dealing with what's happening. In the July 5th West Coast publication, The Tai, you claim we're on the brink of, quote, a runaway fire age. What leads you to that conclusion? Just what's happening in California. You know, California did not have a wildfire problem prior to 2003. And I think more than 20 of their worst fires have happened since then, and most of them have happened in the past five years. And we're seeing, I think, you know, that's the model for how we should look at runaway fires in the future. California is not a standalone when it comes to runaway fires. Oregon is experiencing it now. British Columbia is. Alberta has in the past. Europe is now burning up. We have saw the Yakutia in northern Russia, the fires there have been burning so intensely that smoke from those fires have got to the North Pole for the first time. So it's very clear that we are in a very clear pattern right now where we are experiencing fires, having to deal with fires that we cannot control. Uh, I liken it to, you know, a tornado or a hurricane. Those are meteorological events that we don't expect to be able to stop or to control. You know, we basically adjust our lifestyles, our building codes to adapt to that. We haven't done that yet with wildfire, um, and we're going to have to because it really is a, a kind of a tsunami that's taking over the landscape. Yes, and these fires can create their own weather systems. I was astounded to read that tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands, of dry lightning strikes developed in a weather system generated by recent wildfires. And it happened in both the United States and Canada. That happened in Australia, too, a couple of years ago. What are we learning about fire-made weather? Well, these are called pyro-CBs. And again, prior to 2000, they were you know, kind of theoretical events that we knew that lightning was coming out of them, that they, they you could even hear thunder coming out of them. But they were just so rare that no one really believed that they had the energy to, say, produce lightning on a blue sky day as in Fort McMurray uh, and ignite or trigger wildfires 20 miles away from the fire front. We're now seeing these happening with a regular occurrence. I can recall speaking in Washington where scientists from the U.S. Naval Defense Research Lab reported five pyro-CBs, one out of Washington and four out of B.C., uh, erupting simultaneously. And they described that then as the mother of all pyro-CB events. That was, what, three years ago, and now Australia produced 21, I think, during their bushfires. We're seeing it regularly happening in California and British Columbia and elsewhere. It's become a common feature. And How do you deal with a pyro-CB? A thunderstorm that happens on a blue-sky day because there's so much energy coming from that fire that it can shoot out lightning 20 miles away from the fire front. It's mind-boggling. It's really head-spinning. And... We're now just beginning to try to figure out how to predict these kinds of events because we have uh, wildfire fighters who are in harm's way. How do they, those people on the ground deal with something like that? You know, with a plume comes up and then it hits uh, cold air and then it comes collapsing down and then just erupts and sends, you know, uh, fires spreading out in all directions and also triggering lightning at the same time. 
And, you know, in the background of this conversation is something that's millions of years old. It's in mammals. It's in horses. It's in cats and dogs. We fear fire in a big, big way. And now we have something even more horrifying. When you look at some of these videos, or I've been close up to an out-of-control wildfire, and that is the scariest moment in my life. And I think people are sensing this. I think it's it's going to change the way our society feels about itself. It's a very good point. Um, we ha- haven't culturally, we haven't prepared ourselves for this moment. You know, you look at every other kind of disaster that's out there. We've done movies about them. We've written books and novels uh, around them. But, you know, up until just very recently, I think there's only been one Hollywood movie that was even peripherally related to wildfire. If you look at our literature, apart from maybe Norman McLean, we don't include that in, in our literature, largely because our writers tend to live in big cities that are not affected by wildfire. The difference between now and then is that wildfires are now coming to the big cities, uh, maybe not in, in, in flames, but in smoke. And it's affecting our air quality. There's a recent report showing that uh, there may be as many as 3,000 undocumented deaths related to wildfires spoke in California during the 2020 fire season. We haven't prepared ourselves for that kind of in a cultural sense. And so this is a new sort of like the dragon in the forest that we always suspected was there, but is now coming to us. And uh, I think that most of us just, uh, you know, our, our jaws have dropped, and we are only beginning to come to grips with this. And of course, people, especially during this pandemic, are also trying to get out of the big city, and they're going deeper into the forest and building these lovely getaway places and uh, fire up their off-road vehicles and their chainsaws and... Uh, clear a bunch of stuff and don't know what they're doing. That also increases not just the risk for firefighters who have to get them out when they don't want to go, but, you know, just the chances that we will have more fires. It does. I mean, and it's a kind of an economic situation for many people living in a big city is unaffordable because they can't afford the property taxes. If you move into a rural area, in a forested area, either you don't pay property taxes or you pay very, very little. And so that's drawing one segment of the population there. The other segment is the more affluent people, retirees, who decide, you know, they don't want to deal with traffic every day. They want to have a, you know, a, a quiet place in the country, uh, surrounded by forest, and they're, they're not preparing for the event of fire. So they're building wood-sided homes with cedar-shaped shingles, uh, wood decks uh, with a propane barbecue on the, on the deck and ornamental cedars surrounding the house, all of them very, very flammable, basically with a hope and a prayer that the fire is not going to come to them. So in several articles and in your book, Firestorm, you suggest civilization can learn to live with megafires and maybe prosper anyway. Really? I think so. I mean, it's a tall order for sure. The first thing we can do is we can have better building codes, create the infrastructure that is more resilient to fire. We've done that with building codes on the West Coast for earthquakes. Uh, We've done that, you know, places like Florida and Texas and Louisiana for tropical storms that come through. We just don't do that now for wildfire. 
the problem right now for a lot of these communities is that many of them, and I've spoken to many of these forested communities, they want to do something, but the problem is that they don't have the tax base to be able to bring in the resources to make them more resilient. And so I think what we really need is kind of a national program, both in the United States and Canada, that uh, empowers these communities, you know, provide them, say, with a full-time expert for, for a one- or two-year period that tells them what needs to be done to make your community more resilient, and then perhaps tax incentives to encourage people when they build or renovate to build homes that are more resilient to fire. The one thing that we've done for the past hundred years is demonize fire and and suppress it every time it comes anywhere near to a community. That's created a kind of uh, working against Mother Nature and what lightning does. We need we need to have fire to regenerate forests, and we've got to find some way of, of allowing or replicating what Mother Nature does. So we don't have all of this fuel on the ground that burns so intensely that no amount of suppression can deal with it. So there are many, many things that we can do, you know, and we can also reduce our carbon emissions because that certainly is is exacerbating the problems. People always ask me, you're so optimistic about, maybe too optimistic about some of these huge environmental challenges. But, you know, we've we've come come to the plate in the past Acid rain used to be a huge, huge problem, uh, you know, with sulfur emissions uh, acidifying uh, lakes and killing fish right across North America. And who were the two leaders who uh, actually solved that problem? Was President Reagan a conservative Republican and Brian Mulroney a conservative Canadian prime minister? Uh, That gives me hope as a liberal. We are talking about megafires, but now let's go someplace a little safer and wetter. Ed, nobody wants to live in a swamp except maybe hordes of insects and frogs. Why are you writing about the wet places in your coming book? Well, put it simply, is that they're a firefighter's best friend, for one. Most fires, and the firefighters will tell you, can't be controlled. The big fires can't be controlled or stopped. They they can maybe move them away from a community they can slow them, but they can't be stopped. So most wildfires, the big ones, stop when they hit a, a, a swamp, a bog, or a fen. Uh, the problem with that is, is that we've drained, systematically draining swamps, bogs, fens for the past 100 years. Uh, there's estimates that it's as high as 70% in the United States and 50% in southern Canada. So we've removed these natural firefighting reservoirs that could otherwise help us. And my argument in the book is is that what we really need to do is to restore some of these fens, bogs, and swamps in critical areas because they're wonderful wildlife habitat. If you look at most of the endangered species in North America, most of them have a home in a bog, fen, or a swamp. And part of the reason is It's the nature of the habitat, but it's also is that fire is not a frequent visitor. There are predators are not quite as maneuverable. You know, the wolf chasing a caribou into a swamp has a harder time than doing it, say, in in a forest. And we have all kinds of insects in there that many of them that have not even been documented. So from an ecological point of view, it's also important to restore those that we've degraded 
uh, or dried out and uh, protect those that we have still remaining. I want to talk a little bit about peatlands. In Indonesia, large corporations owned by Chinese corporations or uh, companies in Malaysia have been draining some of the world's deepest peatlands and trying to make palm oil plantations, which they call a a green energy. They've sold it to the Dutch as a green energy, uh, even though it destroyed rainforests that are home to things like the orangutans. And peat marshes in Russia have also been drained. And when they caught fire in 2010, Russia and the world experienced record heat waves and hundreds of deaths. Why is peat the X factor in a high fire world? Well, the problem with peat when it burns, or and usually it only burns when it's been degraded, when as they do in uh, Indonesia, you know, they burn those those forests so that they can create palm plantations, is that it's almost impossible to put it out because the peat burns, you know, it smolders and it goes down three, even four feet. And it's not just in places like Indonesia and northern Russia. If you look like the Great Dismal Swamp in North Carolina and Virginia, that has been systematically drained for, I mean, right, right back to the days of George Washington. George Washington created the, the Great Dismal Swamp Company that tried to actually drain that swamp and transform it into agriculture. And they did it. They, the U.S. Congress actually bought shares in it for the next 20 or 30, 40 years. And what that did was it dried out many parts of the swamp, and then they burned. They're burning to this day. It's amazing to think, but the Great Dismal and the Pocosins next door in uh, North Carolina, both of them swamps, wetlands, peatlands, uh, continue to burn because they've been so badly degraded. And so what they're trying to do now, the U.S. Fish and uh, Wildlife Service is trying to re-wet those peatlands to stop those fires. It was not so long ago when it, the last time it caught fire, it took a tropical storm to put it out. And even then it continued to smolder for several weeks. They had a problem with that in another bog in South America. Meanwhile, British scientist Ewan Nesbitt told EcoShock listeners the largest source of the global warming gas, methane, on the planet is actually a big bog complex in East Africa, and they know that from measuring air samples gathered over the world. Did you look into giant tropical peat bogs, which are also under threat? I did. It's a chapter in the book. It begins with, with the Alakai Swamp in Hawaii, which is a, uh, a mountain bog, a system of uh, several mountain bogs, and the newly discovered one in Africa, which is the biggest, uh, what, the largest tropical bog in the world. And they're only, you know, recently being discovered, some of, the, some of these places, and they store an enormous amount of carbon and methane. Uh, and there are plans right now for oil and gas companies to go in and drill into this area because it's it's rich in fossil fuels. And the way they do it is that they're going to have to drain parts of it to be able to set up their rigs. This is just another example of the continuation of draining these wetlands, these, these bogs, fens, and swamps, both here in North America and tropical areas uh, around the world. And there's a lot of worry about methane increasing from Arctic wetlands as permafrost thaws. Uh, I know you've looked into that. Didn't you write a book called The Future Arctic? I did, yes. Yeah. Another head spinner was the 2007 Anaktuvik uh, tundra fire in Alaska that burned for three months. 
the north slope of Alaska doesn't burn. Anybody that's been there would come home thinking this is a very wet, very cold ecosystem. But it was that one summer where things, the rains didn't come. It got very, very hot. And lightning, which is moving north uh, into the Arctic, well past the Arctic Circle, triggered fires that lasted for three months. And the only thing that put them out was the snow that came in, I think, uh, October. And it released huge amounts of methane uh, that had been trapped in the peat in the tundra. Do you think these unloved places like swamps and quaking bogs, and what the heck is a quaking bog, do they have their own right to exist in nature? I think they do. Um, As I point out in my book, I think that they're probably the the most biologically important uh, ecosystems that we have. They store four times as much carbon as the Amazon rainforest, uh, for one, if you're thinking about climate. But uh, you mentioned orangutans, they come from peatlands, and many of the new birds that have been discovered in Indonesia were discovered in peatlands. Uh, there's a, uh, a fen where, close to where I live, where I was out with a biologist that uh, had cataloged 1,500 wasps that are new to nature in this one tiny fin. They're incredible places, and some of the oldest trees in the world you'll find there because really they're so, you know, many of them are so acidic that there are only a certain number of predators that can come in. So you don't have the big algal bloom problems in a, say, a bog or a fin as you do, say, in the Great Lakes. The other thing about them is that they're wonderful filters. You look at, for example, the Great Lakes, you know, it's got an algal bloom problem now, and part of it is because we drained all of the fens and peatlands around them. And these are wonderful filters. Peat captures all of the nutrients that comes out of agricultural areas and stores them there rather than going into the fresh water of the lakes. So they're Mother Nature's way of filtering water or fresh water. They stop wildfires. They're home to a remarkable array of birds and animals and insects. The, I was also with another biologist that has been tracking, trying to find a butterfly or a moth, I'm sorry, that is thought to be extinct for the past 20 years and found one. Where did he find one? In a fen. And when other entomologists started looking, they've been finding dozens of these uh, moths that, that were thought to be extinct in fens. So these are largely unexplored areas. And part of the problem is that scientists are biased. You know, scientists are like human beings. They like to do their studies generally in areas that are reasonably comfortable, you know, picturesque. It's a little bit more of a challenge to be slogging through a very, very buggy bog or a fen or a swamp to conduct your research. And I think that's where we've got to start focusing our attention. I couldn't go out on one of those swamps, and I have done this, without a, a bee bonnet on like and just, you know, elastic bands around the gloves leading up my shirt. You've just got to be in a almost a special gear to survive when there's uh, swarms of mosquitoes and black flies and deer flies. Well, you know, in the Great Dismal Swamp, they actually have a video saying that bug spray is not enough. (laughs) (laughs) That only encourages them. (laughs) They they really do. And when you go there, I mean, you really have to pick your times because I've never seen anything quite like it or been the number of different flies, biting flies there is extraordinary. And so in a way, it's good because 
you know, the problem with many of the mountain parks, for example, in, in uh, the Canadian Rockies, we have up to 6 million people visiting annually. There are just too many people, you know, for that grizzly bears and caribou and other animals to be able to manage. They're constantly bumping into each other. These are animals that are solitary. They like to be alone. But there's just too many people there. You don't have that problem in a swamp or a bog or fen. So that's one of the great benefits of focusing on these areas is that you don't have competing interests such as businesses that rely on tourists. So I, I, I just think that it makes an awful lot of sense given all the ecosystem functions that you have from a bog or a fen or a swamp, the, the filtering of water, uh, the prevention of wildfire, uh, the habitat for wildlife. It's a win-win situation, and they're, re they're relatively small. And it doesn't take an awful lot to restore them. One of the things that they're doing in California this year in Nevada is, is they're bringing back beavers so that they build dams and they naturally re-wet these areas. So you don't even have to have this big, huge infrastructure in play to restore them. It's fairly economical. I've, I've just finished, you know, part of my, my book is about it's wonderful that we have this international campaign to plant more trees on the landscape. You know, in Canada, I think they're looking at $10 billion over a 10-year period, and they're devoting 4 or $5 billion to do it, which is nice. And everybody likes trees, and everybody likes the idea of planting a tree. But a tree takes an awful lot of fertilizer, for example, to get going. It also has to have the right conditions to get going. And it also has to deal with insects and potentially wildfire that could wipe out a whole bunch of trees. That doesn't happen in a fen because a fen is pretty resilient. You know, the, the main ingredient in peat is sphagnum moss, and it really is a super plant. You can dry it out. They found a 500-year-old spe uh, specimen in the Arctic embedded in ice, and they took it back to the lab, and it grew. You know, you can't do that with a tree. Once a tree is dead, it's dead. But the mosses that are the, the foundation for peat are incredibly resilient, and they, their ability to grow and spread is remarkable. So we should really be nurturing those kinds of ecosystems. Well, in our last minute, would you tell us about the new book you're working on about fires? It's basically North America-centric, and it looks at the history of wildfire back to the days when you know, the first Jamestown community started and how we imported our, our approaches to wildfire were inherited from Europeans and why, for climatic reasons, for cultural reasons, uh, we got into this very big mess that we're in. And so I look at the sequence of a whole bunch of different fires that shape the way we think about fires and also how mistaken we were in thinking that we could control them. Ed, where can listeners follow up uh, to get more on your work? I write a lot for Yale Environment 360, uh, which is a magazine published by the Yale School of the Environment. Uh, I write for the TAI. I've written for the Los Angeles Times. I've got six, seven, eight books out and I encourage everybody to read my next book, Swamplands, which I think is Future Arctic was about how we can do really nothing about declining sea ice. It's going to disappear, and the ecosystem is going to change. The difference thing about swamps, fens, and bogs is that we actually can do something about it. And so I think it's a, an optimistic story. 
We've been speaking with award-winning Canadian journalist and author Ed Struzik, and you can check out his book, Firestorm, How Wildfire Will Shape Our Future, and watch for the soon-coming-out release of Swamplands, Tundra Beavers, Quaking Bogs, and the Improbable World of Pete. Ed, thank you for sharing your work with Radio EcoShock listeners. It was a pleasure. Thank you. I'm Alex Smith reporting. My thanks to Alex Smith host and founder of the weekly free program Radio EcoShock for permission to rebroadcast. I have followed Alex for almost all the 15 years of his extraordinary work and rely on him for tracking the scientific literature on climate change. Check out the archive on his website www.ecoshock.com Net. That's ecoshock.net. My name is Maria Gelarden. Thank you for listening.